1: Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Charles L. Zeldin is a professor in the Department of History and Political Science at Nova Southeastern Universities, Halmus College of Arts and Sciences, where he teaches courses in history, government, and legal studies. A legal constitutional historian by training, Zeldin has published works including Justice Lies in the District, the US District Court, Southern District of Texas. 1902-1960, to 1960. Voting Rights on Trial, The Battle for the Black Ballot, Smith v. Allwright and the Defeat of the Texas All-White Primary, The Supreme Court and Election, and Thurgood Marshall, Race Rights and the Struggle for a More Perfect Union. Forthcoming another book he's writing is The American Judicial System, a very short introduction. Dr. Zeldin is also the general editor of ABC Clio Press's three-volume about federal government encyclopedia, for which he was volume editor of volume three on the federal judiciary. Today, we'll be discussing the third expanded edition of his book, Bush v. Gore, exposing the growing crisis in American democracy. Dr. Zeldin, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So to start off, could you give a brief, if you can, overview of the situation that led to the Supreme Court case Bush v. Gore?
0: Well, it begins with what one book calls a perfect tie. And it really was. The 2000 election had an effective tie in the Electoral College, literally meaning that one state would determine who was the winner. At the same time, that one state was Florida, which out of some 5 million plus votes came down to less than a thousand votes separation. In essence, as one statistician told me at the time, it was like we were flipping a coin to see who was the winner, and it landed right on its edge. So it was very close in a state that itself was very, very close, and it was close enough that it was worth fighting over. If there had been 20,000 or 30,000 votes apart, that would be close, but not close enough to fight because you're unlikely to get enough votes to switch the outcome. But when you're a thousand votes or less, that's the plus or minus when you're looking at a poll. And so in Florida, both sides began to fight over recounting the votes, over trying to determine what was the actual outcome in Florida. And what we found was there was a lot of problems, most of which were the result of of incompetence, sometimes of good intentions gone bad. There was the butterfly ballot, which cost about 3,000 plus votes for Gore. There was the form ballot in Duval County where they voted on two pages. That probably cost Gore three to 4,000 votes. There were broken voting machines in Miami-Dade County in minority districts that probably cost Gore 500 to 1,000 votes. You see the trend here? There were a lot of people who wanted to vote for Gore, but for one reason or another, their votes were not counted. And then there was the problem of what we call undervotes and overvotes. Undervotes are ballots in which no vote is recorded. And the technology we were using, which were the CHADs and the IBM push card type voting, sometimes if that CHAD wasn't pushed completely off, it would fold back under and it would come out as a zero, as no vote made, even though it might be three quarters disengaged. And overvotes are ones in which you had, say, someone vote for Gore, and then to be real safe and sure, they added his name as a write-in. Well, that's, you know, you voted twice. That's an invalid vote. Except in Florida, the statutes and the Constitution of Florida state that the standard in determining a vote is the intent of the voter. And it's very clear in those cases that the voter really, really wanted to vote for Gore or Bush in some cases, but mostly Gore. And so we were fighting over how to count these ballots, over which ballots to count, And what made it really significant was whoever won Florida won the presidency. And being America, what started out as a political fight or an administrative fight over the standards to be used for for counting ballots and and, and what have you, very quickly became a legal fight over what was the legal requirements for counting a vote. The Bush team very quickly said that Partial recounts and different standards between different counties was illegitimate, that you needed a statewide standard. Problem was, there was no statewide standard. And if the state imposed that standard, that would change the rules under which the election was being held after the fact, which would throw it into the House of Representatives and the Senate to determine whether these electoral votes were valid or not. So a catch-22. Meanwhile, the Democrats were emphasizing the we need to count every vote. If people intended to vote, made a good faith effort to vote, the technology should not hold them back from the vote being counted. And so there were something like forty-six separate litigations. A lot of them were brought by citizen voters, especially in regards to the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach County. Very early, the Bush team went to the Southern District of Florida to make the case in federal court that the standard being used by the different counties was unconstitutional, that it was a violation of due process and a violation of equal protection, that it was somehow stealing votes from those who had voted properly. Ultimately, it got to the Supreme Court of Florida, where they determined that the state standard is the intent of the voter. Therefore, there should be be an effort to look at these ballots and determine what the intent was. Ultimately, they determined that there should be a statewide recount of undervotes and potentially overvotes to see who won and who lost. And the standard was the district judge in charge basically said if there's a question that it's not valid, don't count it. Just the ones that you're really sure about. Bush challenged that decision of a statewide recount it went to the supreme court the supreme court ordered a stay on the recount and then ultimately decided that that request for a stay was itself a form of petition for cert they had arguments in the cases and in what 36 hours came out with an opinion that basically said recounts are over the decision is over Effectively, Bush had won.
1: Why do you think that focusing on the fact that a 5-4 court picked the president is not enough? What are some of the hidden dilemmas and challenges in our electoral system that are laid bare by the case and events leading up to Bush v. Gore?
0: Well, the first thing to understand is that 5-4 decision was important. It effectively determined who would be president of the United States for the next four and ultimately eight years. I don't mean to to minimize the importance of that. And it's a example of a growing dysfunction and tension within the Supreme Court that kind of explodes in the 21st century in a lot of controversial 5-4 decisions on a large number of topics. But to limit it only to the question of who became president and how they became president ignores the fact that this was an election and that there were problems with the election. There were problems with the recount in Florida. There were problems in the fact that people went in with intent to vote, they made the effort to vote, and then their votes were ultimately not counted. And that this actually turns out to be a very common process. It turns out that the voting machines that we use in Florida and that other states used Average between a half percent and about a three to five percent spoilage rate. In other words, regularly, anywhere from a half to five percent of the votes that people were casting weren't getting counted. And that's wrong. If people are going to at least make the effort to vote, we should make every effort to count them as proper. And in fact, Illinois had a worse problem than Florida. The thing is, though, in Illinois, Gore won by a big enough margin. Who cares? In Florida, it was close enough that we had to care. And in fact, had Gore won Tennessee or Arkansas or even New Hampshire, we wouldn't have cared what happened in Florida because Gore would have won the Electoral College and been president, no matter what the outcome in Florida. It was sort of this perfect storm that made clear that our voting system was old, it was rickety, it was fragile, and that when votes got close, We couldn't tell who won and who lost. And that's important for democracy. It's also important because what the events during the recount brought out was just how deep what we're today calling tribalism in American politics had sunk its claws into the nation. Very quickly, within days, everyone knew what the answer was. They had picked their side. The outcome of the vote, the outcome of that recounts weren't going to change anyone's opinion. And that's wrong. You know, we had a legitimate question about how to count these votes, and there was a legitimate debate over it. And both sides had legitimate elements to their arguments on this. But on the popular front, and there were really two wars going on here one legal and one public relations. On the public relations front, people had made up their mind. And we saw that the impact of the growing. Electoral realignment that had been going on for a number of decades was intensifying and had left us sort of evenly balanced and absolutely convinced that the other side was out to steal the election. And that, again, that points to problems in American democracy, problems that have only gotten worse in the 20 years since. Today, we can barely, it's like we're in different worlds between the two parties. In 2000, we were in the same world, we just had very differing takes on what should be the outcome of the election. And then more than that, and I think maybe this was because I was a Floridian, it just struck me early on as the real problem here was we never should have been in this problem in the first place. The electoral system, had it worked as it was supposed to, would never have put us in this place. Yes, you might have had a problem like the butterfly ballots, which poor Teresa Lepore, she did it for the best of reasons, it just proved to be the worst of decisions. But there were other problems, uh, a biased and flawed voter purge prior to the election that resulted in people who were not former felons, nor dead, being pulled from the voter rolls and thus unable to vote. The use of old equipment sent to minority precincts in Miami-Dade and some other counties that resulted in minority voters having their votes suppressed. Again, not necessarily with the intent to suppress them, but with the assumption that minority voters don't show up anyhow, so who cares? Well, they did show up. We should care. And then on top of that was the events of the recount itself. What we saw was just how easy it is to manipulate electoral outcomes. Not not big time. We're talking point shavings here. Think basketball and the and the gambler who pays a star player to miss just two three throws. That's it, just two. But that could be the difference between winning and losing. And that could be the difference between the gambler winning big or losing big. And what we saw was the ability of Secretary of States and state elections offices to shape electoral outcomes, how we count the votes, by legally, and this is the important part, by making decisions that were legal, but that were politically partisan, that they could shave points, and that the decentralized nature of our electoral process meant that this could also happen on a local level. I mean, I can understand why Republicans are very frustrated with Broward county and the way they kept changing their decisions what ballots to count but the reason they had the power to do that was that florida intentionally created a decentralized electoral system there literally was no way to ask for a statewide recount there was no specific standard for counting ballots except look to the intent of the voter so when i first wrote the book the first edition and the second edition the subtitle is actually exposing the hidden crisis in American democracy, because while everyone was looking at who became president and how, hidden beneath it was this realization: Hey, we can shape the outcome of elections when they're close merely by doing our job in a partisan manner. And the only one who took up what I, I called the unlearned lessons of 2000 were the partisans. Were Electoral administrators with partisan focus and intent who realize that by, for example, in 2004, Ken Blackwell saying up in Ohio, if you want to register to vote, the registration card has to be on card stock of a certain weight. Well, a lot of people are just printing out federal ballots to register or federal registration forms, printing them up and mailing them in. And he said, no, 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 you can't accept them. You've got to send them a letter saying, please redo it with this particular form. Well, by the time the election came around, there were tens of thousands of people who had resubmitted their applications, but had never been processed in time for the election. I I called this process administrative gerrymandering, because you were gerrymandering the outcome, much as we do when we draw electoral districts. Kind of shape the partisan impact of these administrative rules. Now, the reason I changed the title to The Growing Crisis of American Democracy is that after the 2004 election, it came out from under the veil. What had been hidden and sort of only being done by political administrators, all of a sudden now state legislatures were getting involved. They began to pass laws to impose voter ID limits, to expand voter access depending on which party was in charge. They were trying on both sides to reshape the framework of voting to make it either easier or harder to vote. And both sides are doing it for partisan reasons. Although the ones who did it the most were the Republicans because they needed to cut back on the electorate. The Republicans are very lucky. They've got a base of voters who vote regularly. So any big increases in new voters is generally going to come not for people who are going to vote Republican, but people who are going to vote Democratic. Because there are a lot of people who are likely to vote Democratic who generally just don't vote. So by making it harder to vote, they're also making it harder for the Democrats to win. The Democrats, on the other hand, they just needed everyone to have a chance to vote who wanted to vote. Then if they got out the vote, they could win. So in the end, the Republican actions were more egregious. But one of the elements I make in my new chapter of the book is they were both doing it for partisan reasons. And that's what takes it back to 2000, the realization that you can manipulate the electoral process and not break the law. And if we only focus on who became president and what he did as president, and very important topic, don't get me wrong, we miss this whole element that has shaped the politics of the last 20 years.
1: How are judges at every level in Florida and in the federal court system imperative to deciding the election?
0: Well, this is America. Whenever there's a question, of policy, or of even fact, we sue. We use the courts as the mechanism for settling problems And in other countries and other places. They'll use bureaucrats. They'll use administrative remedies. But in America, if given a chance, we sue. We go to court and we ask the courts to settle our problems. And politics is no different. What we see in 2000, is a massive effort to get the courts involved to shape outcomes. And it put the judges in a very difficult position. George Labarga was the judge in Palm Beach County who had all the cases dealing with the butterfly ballot. And his opinion ultimately came out and said, you know what, you're right, You got, you got cheated. This is horrible. Your vote should count we know what you wanted to do and it should have gone your way, but there's nothing I can do for you. Can't change an election after the election. And we can't change your vote after you voted. Even though we know that there was a mistake and the mistake rested with the administrators who organized the election, not with you, the voter. As we got higher up into the process, as you started getting involved with the district court and the circuit courts in Tallahassee, which by state law, all statewide electoral problems go to those courts. We began to see them getting involved in questions involving absentee ballots and the process by which we adjudge whether an absentee ballot is valid or not. Turns out that about 30 to 40% of absentee ballots quite regularly are, at least back then, were denied because of problems with the date they came in, not having a proper postage stamp, not being signed properly, not having the name match. And all those things had to be litigated. And then we got to the question of, by what standards do we count the votes? The votes that we can argue show the intent of the voter, and in which we can say, ah, but if we look at it just properly, we can know what the intent of the voter was. Now, the Republicans argued the only true vote is one that removed the Chad completely, and therefore there was no undervote. An undervote means you didn't vote properly, therefore we can't count it. The Democrats argued, well, you know, if, if two or three of the edges of the chad were were loose, clearly you intended to hit that particular spot and to vote for that particular candidate. And so the judges found themselves getting caught up. And ultimately being told, you've got to settle this problem because politics can't. And you need to do it quick because we're running out of time. Because if we don't figure this out in time for the electors to vote, then Florida's electors are at risk of not having the vote counted, which changes the nature of the election and which, you know, ultimately result in a winner who might not be the right winner. Or worse, it might throw it into a Congress, and this is the same Congress that just got over a year or two earlier, fighting over the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Not exactly the most cohesive body in America. And so ultimately, with the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, I think that the reason they ruled the way they did, and I fully acknowledge the five justices ruled in a manner that they liked the outcome of, but that the decision to take on this choice and to end it, even knowing how much of a hit this was going to give to their reputation and the respect people had for them and and their standing, was that this was a boil that had to be lanced and who better to lance it than the doctors who are judges, who would be able to do it for reasons that were not overtly political. Now, unfortunate for them, people saw the politics in it anyhow. But as I went through and looked at the logic behind the various judicial rulings, what I saw was that a lot of the judges were acting in ways that were in line with how they viewed the law and the Constitution. Yes, they were in line with their political preferences, but that ultimately, the Chief Justice Rehnquist's statement that this was being done for the good of the nation was really how they viewed it. Now, do I know this for sure? No, because I've never seen the records. I haven't been able to get into the the judges' papers. However, there have been a couple people who have had a chance to look at the judges' papers, in particular Justice O'Connor's papers. And all I can say is that Evan Thomas, in his recent biography of Justice O'Connor, in the notes when he's talking about Bush v. Gore for no reason makes point that mine was the most accurate depiction of what happened. I'm grateful that he said it. I still don't know if it's true or not. All I could do was use logic, look at what the justices were saying, but the key was, and in this I'm very strongly belief in, they figured we'll take the hit because that's what a Supreme Court has to do sometimes make the hard decisions. And had they then used that as a means to bring about reform, or had they then backed away and rebuilt people's trust in them, all good. They took the hit. Thank you for taking it. Problem is they didn't use the moment for reform. And they kept on ruling and especially voting rights matters in ways that seem equally partisan. As a result, we have a court now that I don't think has the gravitas to fix a problem like Bush v. Gore were it to happen in the 2020 election.
1: Could you go to something you just alluded to and explain the reasoning underlying the Supreme Court's opinions? Well,
0: there were three groups of opinions. There was the per curiam which argued that as a question of equal protection, if you are going to run an election, you have to count the votes the same. The same standard needs to apply within the state. You can't count votes one way in one county and another way in another county. And that because Florida didn't have a manageable standard that the intent of the voters is not a manageable enough standard to provide for the same voting process across the state. And because they didn't have a standard imposed by legislature across the state, that the the recounts as they were going on could not result in a truly effective outcome. Therefore, we need to simply stop the recounts. Now, based on everything that I've heard since, it sounds like the only two people who were really strongly in favor of this position were Justice Kennedy and Justice O'Connor. And it's unclear who wrote what parts. I've heard some that it's O'Connor. A lot of it was written by Justice Kennedy, it seems. And ultimately, this became the opinion of the court. One of the extremes, though, was the Chief Justice Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia. And they all agreed with a concurrence that was written by the chief justice, which is very technical. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist never saw a problem. He didn't want to come up with a highly technical and somewhat convoluted response to Uh, the way he wrote writes opinion, how he views the law. And his argument there was effectively there was a time limit that Florida had chosen a time limit, which was the safe harbor date. That's the date by which if the state has come up with and certified its vote, Congress must accept that certified vote. If it's after that date, Congress can challenge it. And, And he basically argued that the legislature in Florida had set this date. Therefore, they wanted it settled by this date. And therefore, uh, it was imperative to end the the recounts. It also implied that ultimately the decision as to how uh, electoral votes are are organized is done by the legislature. The legislature doesn't technically have to poll the people through a vote. Although once they've chosen to do so, they they need to actually listen to it. And that uh, there was a real good chance that if the outcome of the of the recount went for Gore, the state legislature was already in the process of voting in electors for Bush, and that it was in no one's best interest to have this uh, two sets of electors fighting over over who counts. And uh, my take is that this was actually the Chief Justice' effort to write a majority opinion, but he could only get three justices to sign on to it. You'll note that this opinion has nothing to do with equal protection. So in essence, the Chief Justice Scalia and Thomas said, we agree with the outcome of the percurium, but our reasoning has nothing to do with that. We really think the answer should have been that, we, that, that there should be no recount at all. And we really don't buy this, this, this equal protection argument. In fact, later on, Justice Scalia would name it as, as a, well, We'll use a rude term to describe the curium opinion. Then there were the dissenters, two of the dissenters on and out said this is this is a mistake, this is horrible. This is a violation of people's right to have their vote counted, and they objected to the curium decision and the decision to stop the vote and two of the of the dissenting justices technically wrote procuriums in which they said, we agree with the equal protection argument, but we disagree with ending the, the recount. Let it go back to Florida, let them do the recount, and then let's see. So, confusingly, it was seven, no, it was eight, um, two, in favor of the the idea of equal protection, but it was, it was 5-4 as to ending the vote counting and picking a winner. So all in all, it was a mess. It was a court that didn't quite know how to answer uh, the dilemmas posed by Bush v. Gore, and in which ultimately you had five justices who wanted it over, and you had four justices who wanted to let the process play out, but were more than happy to tell Florida you got to count in a uniform manner across the state. I when I first read the opinion my first take was god this is a very liberal te- uh, uh, this has liberal implications. Then I got to the point of but you can't you know stop the recount. It's like okay, they're taking a liberal idea and then they're they're just simply ending the recount, which was a very was a very conservative uh, approach to it. And since then the Supreme Court does not like to mention Bush v. Gore. It is a case that is never mentioned in the Supreme Court. In some recent decisions, where Bush v. Gore and the idea of equity as a foundation for vote counting could be legitimately used, the court's still not mentioning it. Still not citing it as a as a as a precedent, because they were fighting over. Uh, incompatible views of the role of the courts in shaping the electoral process. And that inability to come to a consensus, the consensus I propose at the end of my book, where I go normative, is that would have been nice if they had simply said, okay, it's over for this election, but you better fix it so that in the future, everyone's vote is counted equally, or we'll come in and we'll make you do it. Except the court didn't do that and in fact we've gone in the opposite direction and our electoral process become more fragile and more partisan and more subject to
1: breakdown how has bush v gore impacted public perceptions of the supreme court
0: well when when, when the case came out there were a lot of people who said oh this is this is horrible the court has has taken a fatal blow to its respect to its dignity, to its gravitas. It blew any goodwill people had towards it. Um, And there were a couple of people who came and said, nah, in time, people will not forget it, but they'll lose the sense of anger. And there are still people who are very angry. When I, in 2007, I was sitting down with my undergraduate history professor, legal historian, David Koenig. I said, by the way, I'm going to write the book on on Bush v. Gore. He started grinding his teeth and just he was furious at the Supreme Court. And I've run into lots of people who feel that way. I I, I jokingly say to people, when you read my book, I don't pay for your orthodonture. Because you'll probably, which either side you're on, you're probably going to end up grinding your teeth a little. But then I run into people, my students, for example, who couldn't give a damn because it happened when they were babies. And they just don't understand the anger that's associated with it. And because things have, quite honestly, gotten worse since then. So there's lots of other things to be angry about and frustrated about. But the court did take a hit. The court presented itself in a manner that seems very political, very partisan. And the court has done this in the past. And what usually happens is for the next 10 to 15 years, they don't make partisan rulings. And in time, people come back to appreciate the court as a neutral arbiter that settles our legal problems, our constitutional problems, except they didn't do that. Citizens United, uh, the decision on on political gerrymandering, there have been about a half dozen significant decisions dealing with voting and elections where the court has come down time and time again in favor of limiting the access to the polls or in opening up the partisanship of of money and, and politics to shaping the political process. And so with each one of these, the court has taken another little hit. And so you've got people who, they're not angry over Bush v. Gore, they're angry over Citizens United. They're not angry over Bush v. Gore, they're angry over the Rufo case and partisan gerrymandering. They're really all part of the same. I saw a potential, and this again, this was, at the very end, I allowed myself to go normative, which is a historian I'm not comfortable doing, but I felt, Given the period I was writing, and it, it was necessary, which I said the court could have made um, egg salad out of these broken eggs if it had stressed the need to reform the process, to take partisanship out of the electoral process. But they didn't. And in given further opportunities to do so, they haven't. If anything, the current court is even more biased against mandating. Non-partisanship in the running of elections. And, and, and so there's a reason why Bush v. Gore is spoken in the same breath as Dred Scott or the Lochner cases and the Lochner era cases as places where the court really just blew it. And it will always be a case that lives in infamy. It's just there are other cases now that people are more focused on. But it started with the choices made by the justices in Bush v. Gore.
1: What does your book help us understand about the voter fraud versus voter suppression debate?
0: Well, one thing it points out that there was almost no question of voter fraud in the 2000 election there was potentially electoral fraud. That's to say, areas in which those who run elections were were shaping the process. And definitely after the fact, everyone was engaged in electoral fraud in one form or another, seeking to shape the outcome for partisan purposes. But in terms of the voters, there was very little cases of the voters actually cheating. And yet, in 2001, when... It was time for the Senate to sit down and start talking about how do we fix this mess and what would ultimately result in the Help America Vote Act of 2002. The co-chair, the Republican co-chair, was Kit Bond from Missouri. And he gets up and the first thing he says is dogs are voting in St. Louis. That there are cases in which dogs are registered to vote. Well, actually, the dog didn't vote, and no one voted in the dog's name, but there, was pe- there there, were cases of what we call registration fraud. Well, I hate to tell you this, but the mouse is always registered to vote in, in Orange County in Florida. There's always somebody in Central Florida who registers as Mickey Mouse, but the mouse never votes. They were pointing to this and saying, we've got this big, big problem of voter fraud. We have to make it harder for people to cheat. And that means we have to make it harder for people to vote. The Democrats were kind of flabbergasted and said, but but, but the problem we had was voter suppression. Minority voters who were denied the vote because of broken machines, minority voters who because of name patterns, were taken out of the voter rolls wrongly. And of course, this whole idea of the unequal way in which votes were counted. Florida had nothing to do with voter fraud. No, the problem is voter fraud. Now, understand the Republicans had been using voter fraud as a justification to tighten voter rolls and to engage in voter suppression going back to at least the 1980s. In fact, there was in New Jersey a consent decree that basically said that the Republican Party could not engage in voter supervision, supervision of, of voting places because they had engaged in voter suppression in doing so. Recently, that case came to an end. And guess what? The Republicans seem to be wanting to do this again. So voter fraud was not a new idea for the Republicans, but all of a sudden they came out and they said, this is the number one problem that we have to fix if we're going to fix our electoral system. Well, yes, there are cases where people come in and vote inappropriately, but in almost every case, it's usually the result of error on the part of the people running the election. Uh, Junior signs over senior's name, senior being dead. Aha, someone voted for a dead guy. But actually they share the same name. They just signed the wrong slot. Or the errors have to do with, well, (laughs) quite often, Republican efforts to manipulate absentee balloting. Uh, Or sometimes you get somebody who is a felon who thinks they've they've regained the right to vote, but it turns out they haven't. But all in all, there's very little voter fraud where voters come in and try to impersonate themselves and vote illegitimately out of millions and millions of votes. We're talking a thousand, maybe over the last 20 years. But tell that to the Republicans in their minds. This is the number one problem. Now, again, as, as, as I mentioned earlier, when the Democrats are pushing for to end voter suppression and increase voter inclusion, they're doing this in a way that that helps them. Because the easier it is to vote, the more likely they are to get part-time voters, irregular voters, to come in and vote, and they're more likely to vote for the Democrats. The Republicans, on the other hand, want a very clean, concise electorate because generally most of their voters know how to vote. They know how to vote properly. And so if you limit the size of the electorate, the Democrats are the ones who lose those votes, not the Republicans. So in essence, out of nowhere, with really nothing to do with what happened in Florida in 2000, the debate shifted from how do we make sure that everyone can vote and that their votes can be voted properly to, well, we got to make sure that people aren't cheating. And this is when it went from the hidden to the growing problem of American democracy, because we started seeing the states to impose voter ID laws and citizenship requirements and voter purges and, and all these things meant to shrink the electorate to produce certainty over accuracy. Meanwhile, the Democrats are saying, no, no, we need accuracy. Not, you know, uh, simplicity, not not uh, a quick answer. And that's where we are today. The problem has been that the impact on American democracy of the Republicans effort to limit the vote is done more harm to gaining the opinion of the American public than the Democrats effort at expanding access to the vote. Because in most cases, the sort of fraud that the Republicans are are trying to protect us from don't happen. And if they do, the numbers are so minuscule, they don't affect the outcome of the election, at least writ large. They might in a small district, such as the was it the the ninth congressional district in North Carolina in the midterm elections. So you rerun that election. So. Really, what, what, what happened was the realization about the ability to partisanly affect the outcome of elections by how you organize elections that, that was made blatantly clear by the post-election crisis in 2000, Bush v. Gore, was taken up and was utilized by both sides to gain an advantage, but really taken up by the Republican side in a manner that undermined the Democratic nature of the electoral process.
1: How does your book help us understand what might go wrong in the 2020 election and why?
0: Well, this is why I wrote the third edition and expanded it. What I did was some revisions in the latter chapters of the second edition. I then looked at the period from the 2004 elections to the present. And I tried to write a a summary history of the voting wars. This fight over voter suppression versus uh, voter fraud, between accuracy versus certainty, and the unlearned lessons of 2000 becoming the wrong-learned lessons post-2000 about the ability to shape for partisan result elections by administrative gerrymandering, by, you know, people who run elections, but also by legislative enactment, by shaping the rules of elections and manners that it, much as gerrymandering kind of picks who's going to be voting in which district, this is a form of gerrymandering that picks who can vote and who can't. And as I summarize these legal battles and these legislative rules and these Supreme Court rulings that have allowed this to happen, what comes up is a picture of an electoral system that we are fighting not not only over who wins, we're fighting over how we decide who wins. And both sides have got huge legal teams ready to fight these fights. And there's lots of litigation going on now over whether we can or can't have absentee balloting in a time of a pandemic. Uh, To the extent of what is and isn't a legitimate ID. To to whether how do we purge voter rolls? And how many people can be purged? In Georgia, Brian Kemp purged in one day half a million voters from the electoral votes. He won the governor's race by just over 1% of the vote. A lot of those people who were purged illegitimately were in fact minority voters likely to vote for his opponent. That all of this, which has its roots in the realization in 2000, hey, we can game the system. And we can do it without breaking the law. We can do it without getting uh, consent decrees against us for voter suppression. We just have to get the legislature involved or the governor involved or the courts involved. And the end result of all this is, is that we have an electoral system now that is even more fragile than it was in 2000. Now, if votes are not close, everything's fine in fact everyone in America should be saying what we call what's called the the supervisor of elections prayer please 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 let it not be a close race because if it's close everything begins to fall apart well current polls argue that it may not be a close outcome History, however, argues that it's likely to be close. Imagine if it's close in Pennsylvania and in Florida. Within the margin of litigation. And given Florida's balance, it's likely to happen. It's not assurance, but it could very easy. Look at look what happened with our governor's race, with our Senate race in 2018. Now imagine it's for the presidency. Once again, you're gonna run into a situation in which all of a sudden people are complaining publicly, they're stealing our votes, they're trying to pick a a president through their fraud or through their voter suppression. And of course, with more absentee balloting going on, it's gonna take longer to determine who wins. The numbers we get on election night are not gonna be the final number. So let's say that Trump is ahead in Pennsylvania by a slim margin on election night. But now come all the absentee ballots, and when they're counted over the next week or so, they begin to shift blue. And Trump goes from being ahead to being behind by a narrow margin. Do you, Does anyone think that the president is going to accept that outcome without challenging it? Meanwhile, we have a Supreme Court that is, never healed itself from the trauma of Bush v. Gore. In 2000, the Supreme Court stopped the election and the vice president, Al Gore, said, okay, I accept it. But if you listen carefully in his acceptance speech, what he really was saying is, okay, I accept the need for us to end this vote now for the good of the nation. By the way, I'm running in four years. Rematch. Had 9 11 not happened, that probably would have been the case. A rematch in which we relitigated the 2000 election. Well, one of the lessons of all this is you never know what the future is going to bring, so don't accept the outcome. Fight, fight, fight. Well, the problem is democracy is built around the idea that you accept electoral outcomes. And if you lose, even by a narrow margin, You accept it and then just come back the next election. Well, nobody's willing to accept that anymore. That's not where politics is today. The Democrats aren't going to do it because they can't stand the idea of four more years of Trump. And Trump isn't going to do it because he wants to be president. And he's not going to accept the idea that he lost by a narrow margin. We could go to the Supreme Court for an answer. But I don't think the Democrats are going to accept an answer similar to that of Bush v. Gore. And I don't think the Republicans are going to accept an answer from the Supreme Court unless it picks their candidate. Which means we are now stuck on the 20th of January trying to figure out who's president. Both sides claiming that they won. Not having a clear choice having to name a temporary president in the form of the Speaker of the House. Yes, Nancy Pelosi may become the first female president as a result of this mess. The problem is, it's a temporary job. So, we didn't learn the lessons of 2000. The lesson of 2000, the one that should have been learned was you need to make the electoral process as nonpartisan as possible. The goal should be accuracy. The goal should be certainty. The goal should be to take partisanship and politics out of how we run elections. Instead, we made things worse, more partisan, more political. And now we're coming into an election in which neither side is, is likely to give in, to accept the outcome if unless they win, let us all pray, please let it not be a close outcome. Because if it is a close outcome, our electoral system is going to collapse on itself. We had a warning in 2000. Instead of fixing things, we made things worse. And at this point, in terms of politics, in terms of tribalism, in terms of partisan alignment and partisan attitudes, if it's close, nobody's going to give in. And we're going to be stuck going into the, into 2021 without knowing who the president-elect is. Possibly going to June 20th, 2021, excuse me, January 20th, 2021, and not knowing who the president is. A total breakdown. Of our electoral process. It doesn't have to be that way. It didn't have to be this way even if it was close, but rather than learn the right lessons from 2000, we learned the wrong lessons from 2000 and we took a bad situation and made it worse. And now if it's close, we'll have to pay the piper.
1: I really want to thank you for being on the show today.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the chance to talk about my book and uh, about how the politics of the day have roots in what happened in 2000.